Hi everybody and thank you for staying. My name is Ro McDermott and I'm the film editor for Hot Press Magazine, but far more importantly, this is the director, Rebecca Daly. Uh, hello. <laughs> I've been a fan of Rebecca's work for a good few years and I find, I mean this in the best possible way, your films unnerve me greatly and I find them unsettling in a really thought-provoking and interesting way. And Mammal and The Other Side of Sleep are both beautiful sensory films and I think we've seen that again tonight. Um, but I'm going to ask a few questions and then we're going to throw it out. So I think there will be a roving mic somewhere. Is that right? No, there won't be a roving mic. You're going to have to project your voice. Uh, but I'm sure you'll have lots of questions. But I want to start with the origin story, because this story of this mysterious figure emerging into a very particular and specific community is such an intriguing premise. But where did that initial idea come from? Um, it was actually came from a newspaper article that Glenn, who wrote the film with me, found online about this young guy who walked out of the woods into Berlin and um, presented himself to social services and said... He'd been in a car accident with his parents. They both died in the car accident and he didn't remember anything before that about where he'd come from or his name or anything like that. Um, and, yeah, we followed that story for kind of a year online and it kind of ended in a sort of banal way. But we were really interested in that setup. You know, what, what are the possibilities of someone who doesn't have an identity? What, can, what, can, what are the possibilities in him? What can be projected onto him? What can he become for a community? So. But because that idea itself is so interesting, but then it kind of speaks to larger themes, obviously, like the idea of undocumented people appearing, speaks to larger issues of immigration, and also the idea of the community being torn between welcoming him and being quite wary of him. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of things in the film, I'm going to project loads onto that. But do you play with those themes when you're writing, or is it just the specific characters in the specific situation? I mean, I think things like themes sort of creep into the work because obviously those are the things that Glenn and I are interested in. And someone said to me recently that they thought the three films that we'd written together were all sort of about outsiders and all on this theme of belonging and of people finding surrogates and so on. And um, actually, I hadn't spotted that, but it's kind of true. So, I mean, and we, we certainly were always interested in this idea of of the outsider and you know what it means to belong or not belong and obviously nowadays that's that's even more pertinent than ever with you know the migrant situation and um, the refugee crisis and so on and Trump's behavior in the states so you know it's kind of terrifying times you know you're either inside or outside and we kind of thought it was an interesting thing to tap into and I know for the other side of sleep, that idea also came from a news story about someone who people were projecting their stories onto this individual instead of them being able to tell their story. Isn't that right? Yeah, we were. We, we that was also from a newspaper article about this young woman who had died and her body was found in a car park wrapped in a duvet and. It was just awful. This article was written about her and it, the journalist had gone around and interviewed a lot of people who said that they knew her when she was alive and some people said she was promiscuous and some people said she was a drug user and some people said she was this, that and the other and other people said no, she was lovely and this, that and the other. And it was just, there was all these differing points of view on the kind of person she was and she wasn't there to defend herself. You know, she didn't have a voice sort of in this this narrative that was being told about her and the only reason it was being told about her was because she had been murdered in this way you know no one would have her life would have passed without notice otherwise so yeah we felt she was kind of re-victimized in her death sort of by the media and we thought that was uh, an interesting thing to explore 
And I might come back to that idea of projection because obviously this community starts seeing Tom in different ways. But tell me first about building this religious community and how you kind of researched that and created that and, and what way you worked with the actors to make this feel authentic. Well, um, we based the community loosely on the Hutterites, who are like a North American community. They're Dutch and German origin. And they actually speak German over, over in the States, even though they're living in, in the States. And they are also agriculturally focused, and they live quite apart from the rest of the world. And they have a lot of the beliefs of our community. Um, but then we kind of added stuff in that suited our story, and also because we didn't want to make it a particular comment on any group anyway. Um, and then when we started working with our actors, actually, it's really interesting because um, our actors are from Denmark, from Germany, from Belgium, and um, from the Netherlands. And none of them had kind of the religious context that um, I would have had as like raised as an Irish person. So actually, a lot of it they didn't really understand. <laughs> we had to like create what we called a Bible, which was basically like this book of information about the community, what they were interested in, what drove them, what they believed in, what their daily routine was, what their rituals were, and so on. And so everyone, including the extras, read this so that um, everyone kind of understood where they were at from day one. Because obviously you couldn't go around directing every single extra and know that you wouldn't behave like that. You wouldn't, you know, and they actually, you know, they really got into it and we had the same extras back again and again so that the community would look the same in the scenes. Um, and, and they really got into that sense of the community and kind of, you know, went above and beyond in terms of their research. I love the idea of just an Irish director coming over and going, okay, let me explain religious shame to you all. Um, but there's obviously some extreme beliefs in this community and the most noticeable is the not accepting help from the outside, which is playing out in quite dangerous ways in that a child has gone missing and this elderly woman is incredibly sick. Um, but talk to me about that idea of, because that seems like a common religious theme, the idea of the greater good versus individuality. Um, yeah, I mean, well, obviously there's, there's various reasons why um, the hierarchy in the community don't want people interacting with the outside world, mainly because they might lose their community to the outside world if, if they do. So it's how they sustain themselves, kind of keeping themselves separate. Um, but also it's... You know, I mean, the official sort of reason behind it is that, you know, you should put your full trust in God and sort of human interference, such as medical interference or the police getting involved looking for the child and so on, is sort of messing with God's plan. And that would be seen as, as sort of, yeah, flying in the face of God. And I remember we were talking about this before, that idea of faith and being loyal to her, because you see the struggle, particularly with the, the, the husband of the elderly woman who wants to take her to hospital, and then his son, and that interaction, and that disconnect that they have of how loyal should we stay to this community, and you, that was inspired by stuff in your own life as well, wasn't it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, then another sort of inspiration for the story was my grandmother, who had a very strong faith, um, Catholic faith, um, despite the fact that she, you know, understood that many abuses and, and, and situations had happened within the church, but she believed so strongly that she could sort of endure through all that and persevere through all that. And I was quite interested in how we can uh, come to terms with things that are difficult and how we can sort of persevere through um, really troubling facts to preserve um, the idea of the world that we, that we need to, to believe in. And of course, that 
becomes interesting in the film that they're trying to keep everything out and then Tom wanders in and instantly disrupts everything. But what I think the idea of creating an enigmatic character is really important because I think we see a lot in the world how we project onto people. So I was reading about how Donald Trump doesn't ever finish his sentences, but that works for his base because they're able to go, I know what he means though. Mm. Or even artists like Marina Abramovich will sit opposite strangers and do nothing and people will cry because they're projecting their own emotions onto her. And we well, see she's that. not doing nothing though. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, no, but she's staying still and allowing that yeah. interaction. Um, Marina Abramovich's, Abramovich's spirit is going to appear as my captain for that. Um, but how do you create an enigmatic character then? Like, do you and the actor Vincent Romeo, do you understand him completely, or how do you write and create a character that is meant to be enigmatic? Well, I mean, Vincent and I, and obviously Glenn and I, when we were developing the script, had lots of conversations about this character and about his human form, you know. So I think the character can be read in different ways, either as human or as supernatural or somewhere between the two. Um, and or possibly as created himself as this potential supernatural or this you know that he's deliberately creating these signs that the community can read that he has uh, special abilities and so on or perhaps they're just reading something into coincidences so I think all those possibilities kind of exist in the film but for Vincent um, he had to play a character so we talked about what that human was and um, yeah, and developed that together. And talk to me about, because I, with all of your films, you have Barry Keown in Mammal and Antonia Campbell-Hughes in The Other Side of Sleep, and they're both incredible actors. And Vincent Romero, it's just mesmerizing on screen. Like, where did he come from? <laughs> well, he, he had no experience. He'd, he'd done like a tiny part in a TV series in Belgium, and this casting director who we worked with in Belgium was aware of him um, and, you know, we were looking for this character. We'd seen loads and loads of young men of the right age who just kind of didn't cut it and when I saw Vincent's tape I was just like wow he's extraordinary I mean he just looks so interesting I was like whatever we have to make this work you know because I think he can carry all this character needs needs to carry um, but he really had very little experience and we worked together a lot in prep and also in the casting process we did lots of um, casting uh, days together and then um, but through the shoot he also grew in confidence because um, and we waited all of his more difficult scenes you know with the with the big group scenes in the church and so on towards the end of the shoot because obviously they, they were so important that he was able to hold those scenes and um, so we put them at the end of the shoot and just his sort of pr progress through the shoot was really something to watch it was incredible. I think one of the scenes that I felt was so powerful and again just deeply unnerving is the scene where he disrupts the choir practice mm. in this kind of way that seems, oh, is this, he's just innocently doing this. But it's such a sensory scene and the way the sound is created and way, the way that kind of unnerving atmosphere is created. How do you go about thinking about those scenes that are so sensory? And again, and even the drowning scene, that's all about creating the fear and playing with sound and playing with light. How do you go about thinking about and then bringing those scenes to life? That one's kind of a hard one to answer because a lot of the way that I work is quite instinctive. So, um, so you know, you kind of look at the elements of the scene. So with that music scene, we needed the song. We needed, you know, we needed the Mickle character. We needed the children. We needed them to interact with each other and shoot them and then we need to shoot Tom outside and then Tony who's here our editor had to do some magic in the edit suite to put it all together and 
build the rhythm of it. Um, but a lot of that is about, I think, infusing an atmosphere on the set that the, that the, yeah, that the actors on the day can, can feed into. But something particularly interesting about that scene is that the children didn't speak English. Like, one or two of the children spoke English, but most of them didn't speak English at all, so they had to learn that song phonetically, and they really, they really did an amazing job of it. And is that hard in the editing room to know when a scene is unnerving enough? Do you know, if you're, if you're judging an emotion like fear or like being unsettled, but you're seeing how it gets made, you understand the technicalities, mm. is that difficult to judge? Or do you get someone else in and go, are you freaked out yet? <laughs> oh, that's... Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can sense those things, and I think Tony can as well as an editor. You kind of get a feeling in your stomach. I just, I've, you get a feeling in your stomach when something works what, in whatever way, in an unsettling way, or when an actor does something kind of amazing in front of you or whatever. For me, anyway, I just get this feeling that it's working, this is right. That sounds really unscientific, but... It's yeah. working. Um, does anyone in the audience... I have a few more questions, but does anyone in the audience have any questions? Yes, we have one great person. Just ask about directing silences. I think some of Vincent's um, more powerful scenes are the ones where he doesn't answer the questions. And I'm just wondering how you talked to him about doing that. Like, did you give him a backstory, or how how did you get him to be so intense in, in his response or non-response, like where it's just so pent up and intense? I mean, I think a lot of that is about context, the context that he's in, and I think a lot of that stuff gets gets built by the scene around him. Um, and, and also Vincent is naturally has quite an intense way about him that he, that he brought to the scenes. But in terms of on the set, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be talking to him on the set about level of intensity or things like that at that moment, you know, that that work would have been done in prep and then we're just going through the scene and running a scene between the actors and finding the moments in it as we go. Um, because I, I do like to work with, through the scene a few times with the actors before and, and maybe change camera positions, feeding off what the actors are doing as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it, that's kind of a mysterious thing, how those things work. And also, sometimes the you know, silence is also slightly exaggerated and, and those moments in, in an edit as well, you know, that can be helped at the various stages of, of the film, of the process of making the film. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, great film, really, really enjoyed it. Um, just, just about the, uh, the last scene, and, well, the second last scene where, he, where he's coming into the village with the child slash deer. Um, I assume you shot that with the kid and, and then shot it again with the deer. I'm just wondering, actually, in terms of editing, mm. how do you decide percentage-wise, okay, we'll show the kid 50% and the deer. You know, is that kind of a difficult decision to make, or...? Well, that's interesting because before we, when we were shooting the film, we, I was really debating whether we would shoot the child at all, so or whether it would just be a deer, and then the community would react as if it was a child. But luckily, <laughs> we decided to shoot the child as well as a kind of a to see sort of what else that would bring. And even on the set that day, I knew partly because of the actress who played his mother's reaction and just just how the child appeared in it, that having the child in the scene would be really important um, in terms of sort of the emotional impact of that scene. I think if it had just been the deer, it would have been 
stranger and kind of sort of intellectually interesting, but I don't think it would have been moving in the same way. Um, so, but in terms of the sort of percentages, again, I think you just feel your way around those things, sure. you know. I mean, we had this thing when we were working in the edit where when he's very far away, we didn't really want you to know when he's very far away that it's a deer he's carrying. So we tried to keep him far enough away. And then when, once he got close, then, you know, the sort of the game was up. But when he was far away, we really wanted it to seem like this is the child coming, you know, set up that expectation for the audience. Someone else did have their hand up. Yes. And just this kind of spans across all of your films, but you seem to always pick an actor for a lead part that doesn't have much experience. So you've obviously seen something in their auditions, and in the two previous features, they've gone on to do quite big roles as well. They've been quite successful. So, do you see any benefit from picking a lead actor who hasn't had much experience versus an actor who's quite a lot of experience, or vice versa? I do give you credit for Barry Keown's career. Oh, genuine. <laughs> no, because you were one of the first people who cast him as a lead in a yeah, film, and he, he was incredible in yeah. that role. And actually, my casting, well, not actually, well, one of the casting directors I was working with at the time was like, really, are you sure? I was like, yes, definitely. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, you work differently with an actor who's experienced versus an actor who's not experienced. And so, for example, with, I mean, the best example is Barry and Mammal and Rachel Griffiths and Mammal, who was very experienced. And so they needed totally different things and had totally different approaches to their roles. And she was very kind of intellectual approach and he was very instinctive and he would talk about the character like an animal. He was like, it's like a caged fox and all this, you know, kind of thing. And he would be really playful on the set and he would try out lots of different things. He was very kind of loose in himself, partly because he wasn't experienced, I think. Um, so I think they require they require a different direction, but I mean, there's definitely, like in The Other Side of Sleep, there was a lot of people in the film who weren't actors at all, and that was lovely because it brought a certain authenticity to the story, but, um, but there's also limitations to people who don't have those kind of natural sort of acting chops, and which, so I'm not sure I would necessarily do that again. But then people like Barry and people like Vincent just have a natural flair for acting themselves in themselves. They're just, they're just naturals. Didn't Barry talk about um, acting like an animal or mm. trying to embrace the spirit of an animal on that film? He did, yeah, the caged fox. He was, yeah. Which is just so brilliant. Yeah. Um, and does your writing ever change or does your understanding of a character ever change once the actor is on set and you're seeing them or during rehearsal when you're seeing them? Is there, do you ever adjust based on the actor? Um, sometimes you will see... I mean, actually, with Barry and Mammal, I'd, you know, there were sides to that character that he invented that weren't in the script. I think that's, that is true. But probably that's one of the few times that's kind of happened. Um, because Glenn and I are pretty, you know, forensic with the characters, and, and I do talk to the actors a lot about them, you know, before we start working. Um, so I wouldn't be doing that on the set, that's all in prep, and then when they're on the set, they kind of have their free reign at that point, and you know, I'll just sort of direct them in specific ways about specific scenes, but the character is theirs at that point. So I mean, every actor obviously brings more to the character than... Um, I mean, that's why you have actors playing them. That's not, I, I don't work in animation because I don't want to control literally everything that happens. You know, I, th I, I love the, the kind of... the. Uh, what the actors bring, that extra piece. Um, sorry. 
Imagine if the last scene was animated. You would like usurp Bambi's most disturbing deer scene anyone has ever seen. <laughs> anyone else have a question? Yes. Um, I was just wondering if maybe uh, you could speak a little bit about the development of the film, just from the start to the end. Like, how much did the um, like the setting or the location? Like, how was that influenced by maybe the production partners or how it just came about? Um. So the setting. Well, um, I was told that the weather is a lot better in Belgium than Ireland. Um, so that's why we decided to shoot there because we wanted like hot summer. And then when I got to Belgium, everybody in Belgium said the weather was worse than Ireland and it was summers were rainy there. But luckily we actually had a really hot summer there. So that was part of the reason we went to Belgium was because of the weather. Um, they also had um, the producers I was working with had a good relationship with the producer over there. Um, I've all my films have been co-produced with the Netherlands and that's worked very well. So um, their other part partner was was from the Netherlands and then Denmark was because we wanted quite a lot of Danish cast and so the way the co-production model works is when you get money from whichever country you get money from you must spend a certain amount in that country or on people from that country so it made a lot of sense there and we also did a lot of our special effects in um, uh, the Netherlands, uh, sorry, Den Denmark as well so um, yeah so it kind of came together like that but there's four countries involved which is unusually high actually normally it would be only kind of three which can be complicated, but we were just lucky because it was actually a really fantastic team that that was brought together on it. Yes, it's very back. Are you influenced at all by Babette's Feast? I, I've heard of Babette's Feast, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> but I should, I guess. <laughs> Do you have influences on particular films, or is that kind of dangerous to keep other films in your mind when you're you're trying to create something new and that's your own voice? Um, no, I don't usually. Um, I mean, I, I, there's certain filmmakers' work that I love, but I I I I don't think that I'm sort of conscious, or I don't think that I'm influenced them by them particularly. I find I'm more influenced by things like photography or other kind of art forms rather than films specifically. But then, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, things can happen without you knowing in terms of an influence, of course, and it all comes from different directions. But I suppose the more conscious ones would be things like photography. Yeah. And can I just ask about your start in getting into film? Because I still think there is... I think because we're not brought up with the same go-get-them confidence and bravado of Americans, so I still think for Irish people and people in the UK, it's still quite a brave thing to say, no, do you know what, I'm going to, make, I'm going to be a filmmaker, I'm going to believe in my talent and the stories that I want to tell so much that this is going to be my career. So I'm wondering where that came from for you and when that started and when it was cemented in your mind of, no, this is this what I'm going to do now. Um, well, I was uh, when I was a kid. I used to like put on plays, and I used to write a lot. But um, then I studied drama in Trinity, and then I didn't know what to do after that. So a friend of mine was doing a master's in film in DIT, so I signed up for that, not really knowing if it would work out. But then on that course, if your script was picked for production, then you could direct it. So that happened for me a couple of times, and then I kind of got that um, light bulb moment of, oh, this is this is kind of what I want to do. I want to direct. Um, and then, I don't know, I think it's just, I'm a bit kind of, I'm just a bit, I just kind of push through things, I'm just a bit determined, and I sort of don't think about the consequences too much, and I just kind of drive through things, and I, so yeah, I think it's, probably, it's a little bit just sort of not thinking about it too much, and just getting on with it, I think. It's working out well. Do we, yes? What's next? What's, you stole my question, yeah. <laughs> what is next? 
But Glenn and I are developing a script at the moment set in America, so we'll see, but it's, it's early days. So, yeah. Is there, I find a lot of Irish filmmakers, and I'm really grateful, I think in the last five years particularly, there have been some really amazing, fresh-sounding voices and stories that are set in Ireland. Um, are you making a deliberate move away from setting stories in Ireland, or is that just specific stories need to be told? in the places that you're setting them? I think it's that. No, I mean, I would certainly, I mean, in the future, think about making a story in Ireland again, definitely. It's, it's, it's not at all, it's not at all a, a, a decision to move away from Ireland. It's just the specific story I'm telling that, yeah, requires setting elsewhere. And are you noticing that um, the Irish film industry is embracing kind of new and original stories? Are we getting more welcoming or when you started making films, were people always open to your ideas or has there been a shift? Because I think in the results, I'm noticing that people are getting more creative and more experimental. And also audiences are turning up for those films. Mm. I think we're getting over a little bit of the inferiority complex we used to have of like, oh, it's only an Irish film. Like people are realizing creativity. Have you noticed a shift or have you always found that people were open to weird and wonderful things? I mean, I was quite lucky because The Other Side of Sleep was, um, selected for Cannes for a development program and then for the festival so there was uh, there was a big interest in that anyway and that was my first film so I was quite quite lucky so I've never sort of yeah I've never I guess experienced that real struggle to get people to um yeah to be interested I mm. guess but um but I am noticing definitely more diverse work in Ireland and I think that's that's really great yeah different voices I think that's brilliant any final questions? I think because it's such an interesting film and a thought-provoking film, do you have things that you want people to be talking about when you leave? And also, have you gotten any really weird reactions yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think weird. Oh, I had, yeah, when it screened in Toronto, there was um, th this person in the audience who seemed to be from quite extreme Christian religion and he was like well I'm really delighted that this film is like kind of endorsing Christian <laughs> and I was like really? That's, I was like okay I mean I like that it can be open to interpretation definitely but I was like oh okay that's not really what I said actually um, what do you say to that? like what did you actually say in the moment? Well, I was like well that's great I'm glad you thought so <laughs> I mean what can you say it's because, I mean, the film, is, you know, the film is finished now, so it's the audience film now. So what the audience make of the film is, is up to them. So, you know, if he thought it was endorsing extreme forms of Christianity, great, fine, that's fine. <laughs> and are there things that you're, you're very happy that people are, you know, projecting onto it and using it as a starting point for a different conversation? Well, I, I have found that it's sort of, it is the kind of film where people often want to talk about it afterwards to me, and I always find that interesting, and often I think people's reaction to it tends to be based upon their own experience of faith, so it can be quite personal reactions to it, which for me is the most interesting. Um, well, I'm sure everyone's going to be talking about it. Please talk about it to your friends and tell them to come yes. and tell them to buy many tickets. And everybody, please say thank you to uh, Rebecca Daly. Thank you.